Welcome to Regeneration. Uh, we are continuing in our study of Luke, uh, and if you're new to our church here, that's what we do here. We do expository teaching, and we just go chapter by chapter and line by line, and uh, the things that I skip, I have a guest speaker teach on uh, if they're too tough for me to cover. No, we will cover everything that comes up. Nothing skipped. I can't uh, cater, cater it to uh, what I am afraid of or anything like that. We just kind of go through the Bible. That's, all, that's what we do. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for your word. And uh, as we love it and we cherish it, I pray that your Holy Spirit comes and speaks to us through it. In Jesus' name, amen. In last week's message, we, we talked about the sending of the 72, and for this evening's service, we're going to be talking about the return of the 72 that got sent out. And so these 72 were in addition to the 12 uh, disciples back in chapter 9, and so Jesus sent these 72 to places that he himself was going to go to, so he was kind of sending them ahead of him. And so he told these 72 that there's going to be this plentiful harvest And the laborers are few. And also, by the way, I'm sending you guys out as lambs in the midst of wolves. So I'm going to send you guys out as weak people and vulnerable people, and there's not enough of you to do the work. So just like any other good boss would do. So nothing extraordinary about this group at all, right? Just a bunch of ordinary guys, and that I find kind of encouraging. That the Lord picks out just ordinary people, not the extraordinary, not the exceptional people to go about doing His work. And I, I find comfort in that. That to be in God's service, we, we need not to be extraordinary, exceptional, as exhibited by these 72, because out of these 72, can you give me a single name? There's no name. So we know that this isn't based off of some credential or uh, some kind of clout or uh, gifts or skills or strengths or intelligence or merits or anything like that. It's all because of God's grace. It's all because of the love of God. And I find it interesting when I hear people talk about you know, their own accomplishments independent of God as though independence from God is a good thing thinking that dependence on God is a sign of weakness. Dependence on God is very different than, say, dependence on parents. Right? It's a different thing. Dependence on God is a very good thing. In fact, it is is a necessary thing as a servant of God. Dependence on parents is also a good thing. It's just not a good thing when you're 40. Right? That's... Actually, it's a lot younger than 40, but for some of you, that gets closer to home, so I up the age a little bit. So, gaining independence is, is good in many things, but it's, a, it's not a good thing when it comes to our relationship with God, no matter our age. That the dependence on God always has to be there. John writes of this dependence on Jesus in John chapter 15. Starting in verse 4 of John 15, "...abide in me and I in you." As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. 
If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. And these 72 fit this description. They were abiding in Jesus. And here they are, too few for the harvest, sent out as lambs in the midst of wolves. So they are perfect to be sent out by God because they had to depend on Him. They had to depend on God for, for, for His provision, for His sustenance, for His strength. So 72 no-names. 72 no-names who were told by Jesus in our last study to pack light, stay focused, be content, extend peace, heal, and preach. And if that makes no sense to you, listen to the message last week. It's on iTunes. Now they've returned. And here we are in verse 17. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. So upon returning from an adventure, whether that may be a mission trip or some big accomplishment or, or something that was kind of impactful in your life, there are some highlights from that thing that happened that you would want to share naturally. Right? So you experience something um, really impactful in your life, really life-changing, and it's normal that you would want to share what that is. And that's what the interns are going to do next week. They went to the Philippines. They went to Cebu. They, they did this awesome ministry. And so they want to share what happened, what they learned, uh, what they saw. And so it's a normal thing to want to do this. And in many cases, and I'm not saying that this is our interns, but in, in a lot of cases, after people have gone to some adventure or some mission or they've accomplished something, they want to share the thing that is the biggest thing for them. Like the thing that was, was kind of the, the headliner for them or encapsulates their entire trip. And that's what happened with the 72 here. When, when they came back and we find that as they returned or when they returned with joy and they had this highlight and that highlight was that the demons are subject to them in Jesus' name. That was their highlight. So out of all the things that happened, this is kind of how Luke paints for us what was kind of their highlight, their headline. And so we'll also get what made Jesus rejoice. That's in verse 21. But first, let's, let's talk about what made the followers, these 72, rejoice. Now, I'm sure that the 72 had a lot more to say than just this, right? Lord, even the demons are subject to us in Your name. Period. They said a lot more than that, right? 72 people, you think they all said that line? So it's not literal. It's kind of giving us this Headline, this, this highlight. So what's recorded for us is this highlight of theirs. And I'm sure they shared about a lot of things like the hospitality they experienced or, or the people that rejected them and, and how many times they had to dust their, their feet off and stuff like that. And, and, they, and they shared all this kind of stuff and how they were in the homes and, and they couldn't believe that people were serving Starbucks to them and, and how traumatic that was and how they, they had to just drink it anyway because they had to be content. But, but next time in their travel pack light, traveling light pack, they're going to put in some blue bottle and, and offer it as a gift so that can be served, whatever. But what we have recorded, what we have recorded for us by Luke is the return of the 72 from this mission. People who seemed pretty excited to share with Jesus what had happened with the headline being, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. So imagine for me for just a moment how these conversations kind of went as they were walking back to this rendezvous point that Jesus kind of already told them ahead of time, saying like, oh, we're going to meet here and we're going to meet at this time and we're going to just kind of talk about stuff. So you guys come back at this time. 
So they're all walking back and, and they're going. And, and, and so Joe says to John, hey, hey, uh, hey, John, I can't wait to tell Jesus what happened. I, I, I just can't wait. I can't tell him. I, I can't wait to tell him about what happened with those demons. Can you believe what we could do? And he responds, how do you think he's going to respond? What, what, do you, what, do you, what do you think he's going to say about that? And, and so he, he says, I'm not sure. I'm not sure, but, but I can't wait to see the look on his face. He's going to be so happy. He's going to tell us how proud he is of us. I just can't wait. Let's, let's go. Let's go ask him. Let's, let's go. What did Jesus say to them? Verses 18 through 20. And he said to him, to, to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Man, Jesus, you're a wet blanket. Right? It was like... Don't rejoice in that. Don't rejoice that the spirits are subject to us. You want us? Man. And so these guys are all excited to share like this big thing, this big headline thing, this highlight of their trip. Jesus, guess what? Is this? And Jesus just goes, burst their bubble. And these guys are so excited for what they've done. And how does Jesus respond? I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. What? 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 Jesus, what, what happened to, like, isn't ministry great, guys? Isn't it great? Like, what you guys can do? See what you guys are capable of? Have you just had some faith? No. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Like, what? in the world is Jesus doing here? Talk about somebody that had this golden opportunity to encourage the guys that were in ministry with him, and he says this. But what was Jesus referring to? Was Jesus referring to some event? Or, or what was he referring to? What, what is he referring to by saying this? Is Jesus referring to an event back in Isaiah chapter 14? And you can read that for yourself when <clears throat> when Satan falls from heaven? Or was he talking about Luke chapter 4? You know the temptations? They're in the wilderness and, and the final temptation is Jesus is on top of the pinnacle of the temple and he's standing there and Satan continues to tempt him and tempt him and tempt him and he basically kind of like shines him on and says whatever. Is he talking about how Satan falls like lightning from heaven from that pinnacle point? Is that what he's saying? Or, or maybe he's talking about this very sending of the 72. That he sent those 72, Satan couldn't come against them, and so, you know, Satan failed. He, he fell. What event is he talking about, if at all? I'm not sure. I'm not sure which one it is. I'm not even sure if it's an event that Jesus is referring to. What I can gather from all of this, if I kind of like pulled all these things together, is that there is a common outcome for all those things. If I pulled all those events together, or if I pulled just different things in regards to a relationship between God and Satan, that outcome is that Satan loses. That Satan is defeated. No matter how I look at this, no matter what event I pull to reference this, he's defeated. 
And even though the 72 are stoked, right? They're like, man, the demons are subject to them, to, to, to us. In Jesus' name. Jesus, do you believe that? Can you believe that? that this is awesome. But for Jesus, this is nothing new. That's not a, that's not a new thing. Like, like he sent them out thinking that that wasn't going to happen. He knew that was going to happen. Jesus knows that Satan and his demons are already defeated. You can look back at the book of Job. Right? Back in the book of Job, Satan can't do anything without running it by God. He's already defeated. And so, it's not like God and Satan are continuing to battle things out. Right? And, and fight and, and saying like, well, I'm going to win this battle, but I'm going to win the war. No, it's not like that at all. He's won everything. The only time he gives like a concession is like he allows it. He permits it. But it's already over. Right? So God wins, Satan loses, and, and there's just currently this not yet aspect to it all. Right? That, that it's, it's not yet. That, that the things at the, of the end of our time, at the end of our eight days, is just not yet. Like, it wasn't yesterday either. It's just not yet. But what we can gather from verse 18 is that God has won, Satan has lost, and that from verse 19, that we're given this power, we're given this authority. Right? Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Now sometimes there's confusion for some people in verse 19 in regards to serpents and scorpions and, and that kind of stuff and, and handling them in, in worship services and things like that and all that kind of stuff. Claiming that it's, 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 it's about faith. If I have faith, I can handle these poisonous animals and they won't bite me and even if they do, I'm going to survive. I call that not so bright. That's what I call that. And, or like marrying too many of your relatives. I don't know. I call that something else. That's not biblical. What is Luke chapter 10 verse 19 saying? Well, I think we have to kind of look back into other references in the Bible. That's a, that's a good place to start. So, let's look back to the Old Testament because when you do a word study or when you look at other references like this, if, if, you, if it interests you and you're like, oh, serpents um, and scorpions, I wonder where that is. Sometimes if you look up those certain words and it refers you back to something, it actually pertains to what you're looking at too. Not always, sometimes. In this case, it does. And back in Deuteronomy chapter 8, this is where it's mentioned. Serpents and scorpions. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 15. And the background to Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 15 is that God is leading His people out of Egypt through the wilderness. But the point of the matter is not that they can overcome scorpions and snakes. That's not the point. The point of Deuteronomy chapter 8 is that they do not forget the Lord. They don't we do not forget the Lord. It's an exhortation to remember the Lord and not to forget the Lord. It's not about serpents and scorpions. Now, where else is serpent mentioned? A lot of places. But one of them that is in reference to this, that you can use as a reference to this, is Psalm 91. Now, in Psalm 91, there, there are no scorpions mentioned in that psalm, but another dangerous animal is mentioned in that psalm, and it's a lion. But Psalm 91 isn't about fighting against lions and serpents. What is Psalm 91 about? Let's read some of it. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. 
I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Let's fast forward to verse 9. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder. The young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. So in light of this psalm, which is about God's protection, it's not about going out there finding a lion and trying to kick it, right? or finding an adder and trying to step on it. That's not what this is about. It's about God's protection. So in light of these references, let's look at verse 19 in Luke of chapter 10. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions, and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Sound familiar? So we already know that Satan is defeated. God is victorious, according to verse 18. And from verse 19, Jesus reminds them of who gave them the authority, who gave them the power over anything that comes against them, and nothing is going to hurt them. He's protecting them. It's his protection. And that's what verse 19 is about. So it's not about looking for scorpions and serpents to prove your faithfulness. That's not what that's about. Now some of you who are more familiar with your Bible are probably thinking Acts chapter 28. What about when Paul got bitten in the island of Malta? What about then? Let's look at it. Acts chapter 28. After we were brought safely through, we, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all, because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. So a viper comes along, bites Paul in the hand. Paul shakes it off in the fire. Not a big deal, just a flesh wound, right? Just shakes it off. Maybe Paul was really hungry. and was like, oh, snake meat tastes like chicken. So he puts it in the barbecue. I don't know. Snake kebab, who knows? And so then the Maltese, not, not the dog, the people, the Maltese are waiting. They're waiting for Paul to show signs of being bitten by a viper. Like swelling, like hemorrhaging, like discolorization, like dying. And nothing happened to him. But that's not because he can handle poisonous snakes and scorpions and lions and stuff and live through it like he's immortal Paul, like nothing can harm me. The Lord protected him from harm. It's the Lord's protection. The Lord protected him in this work that he was doing. And this is what's happening in Luke chapter 10, verse 19. It's about Jesus' protection from physical, from spiritual, from mental attacks from the enemy to his disciples. And he's, he's, he's got us covered. He's protecting us. In verse 19, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Well, a bite from a viper would severely injure you, if not kill you. 
Right, but Paul hangs out with them like nothing happened. And these guys must have just been astonished. Just in shock. I mean, they know what happens after a viper bites. I mean, they're waiting. They're like, is he going to blow up? Like, what is he going to do? Like, is this guy's, what's, what's happening? The Lord protects him. And so God will protect us until he wants us to do, until what we do is done. Right? Until he wants what he wants to be done is done. He'll protect us from that. But that does not mean that you and I are immortal. Right? Like, we can't mess around with fatal things thinking that God is going to protect us when we do that. That's, that's dumb. Right? If, if you choose to mess around with rattlesnakes because you want to prove that God is protecting you, that's dumb. Right? You, you leave the snake alone. That snake has a rattle for a reason. And it's not for you to shake. Right? And so it, what that means is when you hear that thing, it means don't touch me or I'm going to sink my teeth into you. That's what that means. And so if you want to prove how indestructible you are, and you jump in front of a bus because you're saying, I'm, I'm about God's work, you know, I, I, and so I'm indestructible, and you jump in front of that bus, perhaps the Lord is going to protect you. I can at least guarantee you that it's going to hurt a lot. Maybe you'll live, but it's going to hurt a lot. But I think you're going to die. Right? I don't think like it's a hero's episode. I don't think you're going to just kind of come back. It's, I think you die. So it doesn't give us the right to be kind of dumb. And just kind of like play, play roulette with, with God's kind of insurance and say like, I'm, doing, I'm about God's work. Let me go do dangerous things with my life. If God called you to go do dangerous ministry, like plant a church in Oakland, He's going to protect you. Right? Well, we've been here for like six years in this place. Lots of dangerous things have happened, but, you know, we're relatively unscathed. Some people have gotten knived and things like that, but hey, we're still here. But Jesus is telling those of us who are going about His work that He's going to take care of us. Things regarded as extremely dangerous while under His service, God is going to protect us. But it doesn't mean that we're not going to face persecution. It doesn't mean that martyrdom is not part of our plan. It doesn't mean that. Those are still very possible things for the servants of God. Right? But you're thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute. Verse 19 says, nothing shall hurt you. It says that. So what's up with that? How can I still be persecuted? How can I still be martyred if it says nothing's going to hurt me? Well, there are a lot of things that have hurt the followers of Jesus and continue to do so. And you can look through your own personal history. You can look through church history. You can read Fox's uh, uh, Book of Martyrs. And there's just a lot of stuff you can read about today's persecuted church. There are more persecuted Christians today than ever in history. There are more martyrs today than ever in history. So, so what do you mean that nothing's going to hurt us? Well, well, Satan can't inflict. He can't harm. He can't persecute. What happens is it's permitted by God. And even in our suffering, that even though that permission is allowed, that we're still victorious over Satan. That even though, even though those things are permitted, we're still victorious. Right? We still have everlasting life with Jesus. 
And maybe physically, in this world, yes, you can be harmed, you can be hurt, you can be all this kind of stuff. But in the life everlasting, you've won. You can't be harmed there. You can't be hurt there. With Jesus, you can't be hurt there. You're still victorious. So we can lose everything in this physical life, in our, ta- in our time living here on this earth. But if we look in the eyes or with the eyes of the everlasting, and with that end, we are with Jesus, victorious over Satan, and looking back at things that are passing. Right? Those things are passing. They're not lasting. What we don't see is the spiritual world where things are everlasting, where things are lasting. And what we are experiencing in our lives now, whether they are good things or they are bad things, they're still passing things. They're going to pass away. But the promise of Jesus, His Word, His authority, that stands forever. Everlasting for us. Eternal for Him. And this brings us to verse 20. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So Jesus just burst their bubble. Like, don't, don't be joyful about that. I mean, that's like a duh thing. Yeah, of course you can do that. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. That's an everlasting thing. That's not a passing thing. This thing you're doing here, that's kind of a passing thing. What about when you can't do that? Are you going to let the ministries kind of like let you ebb and flow in terms of how you're doing? No. We rest on the things that are everlasting. What a refuge we have in Jesus that our names are written in heaven. That they are not passing. And not that we do great works, but, but that we simply have faith in what He has done for us. And not even people who have spirits subject to them are ensured a place in heaven. Right? Just because we do good things and we do good ministry and we have all this impact in what we do in terms of ministry doesn't ensure that our names are written in heaven. That just means you do good works. Just because people do things in Jesus' name does not mean they belong in heaven. Right? Matthew chapter 7, verses 22 and 23. On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So be really careful about making your spiritual salvation one based off of works and what you do, even though the things that you may be doing are really good and amazing things. Even though you may be even called to do what you are doing, make sure that that is not the foundation of your joy. That stuff passes. There are seasons that you're called into different things. There are seasons that things seem so-called successful and sometimes they're unsuccessful. But our joy is not derived from our circumstances and our experiences and our events and all those kind of things. Those are passing. The foundation of our joy is built on something everlasting which is, our names are written in heaven. Rejoice in that. Revelation chapter 20, verse 15, John wrote, And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So rejoice in the everlasting. Your name is written in the book of life. That if your name is written in the book of life, you have something to be joyful about. 
a joyful that uh, a joyful ex- experience within yourself that is everlasting. And when people tell you, you know what, Jesus is irrelevant, or or you have no right putting up Bible verses on church property, that is offensive. Or or you know you. You, you talk about Jesus all the time and you're entitled to that, but I'm entitled to my own thing and my own beliefs and they all lead to the same place. Anyone's name not found written in the book of life and only Jesus writes those names in is thrown into the lake of fire. Knowing that, I have to tell you Jesus is the only way. I can't agree with you. Oh, there are these other ways. No, there's not. The Bible doesn't say that. I'm sorry that it does not say that, but it doesn't. And Luke said in Luke chapter 5, verse 32, I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. So as a church, when we kind of tell people about Jesus, that's what we're here for. That we're here to tell sinners to repent. Just like a hospital's there to heal sick people. That, that's what we do. So we can't hide the fact that we are a church. That, that this is what we do. So if we love people, if we love our neighbors, if we love our community, we will tell them about getting their name written in the book of life. What that is, how to do that, why. Give them all those, those reasons to lead them to Jesus who calls sinners to repentance. To get written in the book of life. It's not based off of our good works, our intelligence or anything like that. It's God's grace. And we'll see Jesus' joy spring up from God's grace in verse 21. But sometimes we get caught up in the things that we're doing here. right? And and, and our testimony here and all that stuff. And we have a great testimony here. And I'm not saying go out there and ruin it and do dumb things and make people hate us and say like, oh, those Christians are terrible. They don't compost or whatever. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, don't hide who you are. You are a Christian written in the book of life, and don't you want others to go with you, to be written on that, to get something everlasting, not this temporal passing stuff. Oh, they think we're cool. Yay! Big deal! Let's share the Gospel with them. Don't be shy about that. We're a church. It's not a, it's not a secret. Jesus is like right in the, the stained glass right there. They know. Tell them. If they get offended, you're like, oh, duh, I, I thought we were at a church. Aren't you gardening at a church? I thought I'd share Jesus with you. Or I'm teaching the kids martial arts or something. And they're like, hey, why are you sharing Jesus with us? Because we're in a church. That's what we do. Right, so verse 21. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. So the 72 returned, and, and they probably didn't get the greeting that they thought they were going to get from Jesus. And it's not that Jesus didn't acknowledge what they did, he's the one that gave them that ability. He gave them that authority. He gave them that power. He gave them protection against things that would come against them. But what they didn't understand was that the source of their joy wasn't what they were doing out there, but that their names were written in the book of life. And so how different is Jesus' joy from that of the 72? 
While the 72 placed their joy on, on the things that they were doing, on their ministry, on, on kind of like the stuff that was so cool out there that they, they had demons subject to them. But Jesus points them back to God's grace that has allowed them to be written in the book of life. And don't focus on that passing stuff, guys. Focus on the everlasting stuff. What brought Jesus joy? There's no doubt that Jesus was a joyful person. And in verse 21, we get one of the few instances where this is recorded for us. Where it actually tells us that He rejoiced. Verse 21, it's recorded for us that Jesus rejoiced. This is actually a big deal. Because I think in terms of the actual word rejoice and Jesus being attached to that, that He did that, He did that verb, this is the only verse in the Bible that tells us that. Now, our version of the Bible doesn't do the word rejoice justice because the word rejoiced in, in the original text is more accurately translated to exult, to rejoice exceedingly, to be exceedingly glad. It wasn't just simply rejoiced. Now, if we just read it that way, in, in our version, we wouldn't get the same idea, right? Jesus rejoiced. It, it's like, oh, yeah, oh, yay, he rejoiced. He was overflowing with joy. He was thrilled with joy. He was more than rejoiced. He was exceedingly joyful. So Jesus listened to the 72. He teaches them. He corrects them. And then as the Holy Spirit ministered, Jesus rejoiced exceedingly. Now something cool is really happening here. Do you see the Trinity? Jesus the Son was praying to God the Father and thanking Him for His grace. And as a result of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, Jesus is full of joy. It's really beautiful. Now the Bible doesn't have the word Trinity in it. But the Bible does have a lot of references in terms of this Trinitarian kind of involvement going on. And the ministry of the Holy Spirit brought Jesus exceeding joy. And we looked at the word rejoice in verse 21, and we saw that there was a more accurate way to translate that. And another interesting word to look at for us in verse 21 is the word father. The word father here is not the same one, Abba. This one is, is kind of more intimate. And it's used by Jesus here, and it says, Father, Lord of the heaven and earth. And, he, and he's telling us here the greatness of God. He's showing us that who pales in comparison to God? It's the wise. It's those who think that they understand things. But it's the little children who acknowledge how enormous the difference is between their own needs and what the Father can provide. Now, in further breaking down verse 21, I'd like us to take a look at God's sovereignty to hide things and to reveal things. Now, what are these things? It says these things in verse 21. These things refers to this mystery of what is involved in having our names written in heaven. And Jesus thanks God the Father for hiding this mystery from the wise and the understanding and revealing them to little children. Right, so who are these little children? Well, let's take a look at Luke chapter 18, verse 17, where Jesus said, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. 
Now notice that Jesus said, like a child. He did not say, while a child or as a child. Jesus said, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child. Meaning, like how a child receives things in childlike faith, in childlike humility, in childlike simplicity, in childlike trust. Not meaning to act childish. Different things. And so Jesus is exceedingly joyful that the Father has established these things to be hidden and these things to be revealed. Acknowledging God to be omnipotent, omniscient, wise, loving. And in order to have the kingdom of God to be revealed to someone, they have to have a childlike faith and trust and humility and simplicity. And to those who are wise in their own eyes, to those who claim that they have understanding in their own minds, the kingdom of God is hidden. And they won't see it. They won't understand it. And so the ones who are wise and understanding, it doesn't mean that they're more educated than the others. It's not about level of education. This is in regards to spiritual things, and you don't have to have an education to participate in spiritual things. We're all spiritual. And everyone has an opinion on spiritual things regardless of education. Whether one is highly educated or one has no education at all, it doesn't stop one's own pride in thinking in their own mind that they are wise, that they are full of understanding on spiritual things. So people don't like to be judged by the Word of God, but they sure like to judge the Word of God with their own set of opinions and their own set of wisdom, and their own set of understandings. And it is their very own set of opinions, their own truths, their own wisdoms, their own understandings that drive them to accept whatever they've conjured up in their heads and prevent them from having the kingdom of God revealed to them. And it's not that followers of Jesus put their opinions and their wisdom and understandings and they just kind of put that all up there and they ignore it. It's not that at all. But the childlike person realizes that the realm of the spiritual is vastly different from the realm of the physical. They are very different things. And the childlike person understands that they are not the same, that they have a childlike faith to humbly accept that mystery, that they are not one and the same. No one enters the kingdom of God puffed up thinking they know it all. No one enters the kingdom of God self-sufficient, self-reliant, self-taught, self-confident, self-righteous. They do not enter the kingdom of God because it is hidden from them. We enter the kingdom of God on our knees, in humility, like little children. Those are whose lives are changed by the gospel and to whom the kingdom of God is revealed to them. You ever wonder how someone... So smart can lack spiritual insight, but they're brilliant. If you ever wonder that, the answer is in verse 21. You have hidden these things from the wise and understanding. God's done it. Stephen Hawking, I'm sure some of you have read that article this past week. He is a brilliant mind. He has an incredible IQ. He knows a lot about physics. He is the guy to turn to in regards to the field of physics. 
but he doesn't know jack about spirituality. It is hidden from him, unfortunately. Right? It's unfortunate that those who are self-proclaimed wise or who know a lot or who understand a lot about the physical things or the physical nature of things, that that can act as the very, very barrier of the things that they actually really need to know spiritually. And they've equated these two realms together and that confuses them. They're different things. And those of us who realize we don't know it all, we can come to God who does know it all, whether in the physical realm or the spiritual realm, He knows it all. And if you think you know it all, you won't be able to come to Him. You will be your own barrier. Your own wisdom, your own understanding will hide that stuff from you. Why? Because you come to Him in self-exaltation. Like you've earned your way into the club because you've figured something out. Or that you're smart enough. Or that you, you understand something enough. The humble comes to the Lord to exalt God. Not himself. Not to puff up himself. Offers nothing. And God is not interested in who he can exclude. It's not like God wants to exclude all the, the wise and the understanding. That's not what he wants to <clears throat> include everybody. He wants to include, and, and so how he does that is he doesn't make it a prerequisite that you are wise, that you are understanding. It's not based on us. Right? It's, it's, a, it's a level playing field. You don't, you don't have to be wise. You don't have to be understanding. It's based on his grace. What we bring is our need for him. We need him. And that's what we bring. And we're not told to chuck our wisdom. We're not told to chuck our understanding out the door to follow Jesus. It's actually quite the contrary. If you look at education, Western education, if you look at the finest universities, some of the finest universities in the world were started by Christians. They started as divinity schools. Many of the Ivy League schools started out as Christian schools. And so it's not like Christians are saying, like, oh, knowledge is a terrible thing, or wisdom is a terrible thing, understanding is a terrible thing. Where did those schools start from? They started from Christians. Not from atheists. From Christians. And so that the thing is, is that we're not looking at our own wisdom and understanding to earn our way into heaven. To gain understanding of how we do that. Because we, we don't do that. God did it. It's all God. So there is no wisdom or understanding on, on how to get there. Because we don't do any of that. It's God's doing. Verse 22. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Now, if any of you have wondered about the matters of Jesus, that's called Christology. right? The matters of Jesus. This verse is really helpful because it gives us glimpses into Jesus' humanity as well as his divinity. Now, in regards to his divinity, it gives us this picture of equal standing between God the Father and God the Son. So again, this is giving us a picture of the Trinity and how the authority of the Father and the authority of the Son, they're the same. 
and 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 how the revelation of the Father and and the Son that they're equally tied to one another. All right. So let's look at some verses in the Gospel of John that support this claim as well. John chapter three verse thirty five. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. John chapter 13, verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father has given all things into His hands and that He had come from God and was going back to God. John chapter 17, verse 2. Since you have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all who you have given Him. Now why is this important? Because if Jesus isn't who He claimed to be, why are we wasting a Sunday night sitting here? Why bother sitting here and listening to the Bible? Why bother telling others about Him? If Jesus is just like any other religious leader, pick one. Just go pick one. But because of these bold claims... There is no other. There is no one to, other one to pick. There is no other way. It's pretty clear who Jesus claimed to be. And by knowing Jesus the Son, it ties us into God the Father. And He reveals this to little children. He hides it from the wise and the understanding. The mystery of the Trinity. The mystery of the Kingdom of God. How we can't know Jesus without God the Father and how we can't know God the Father without Jesus His Son. And there are many who claim they know God, but they don't really know God unless Jesus has revealed it to them. Right? You can't know God without Jesus. You can't. And so you see how important it is to listen to Jesus. Because if you don't listen to Him, there's no other way to God. Luke 9, verse 35. This is my Son, my Chosen One. Listen to Him. And here we are given power and authority by Jesus to share His Gospel. To share His message. Luke chapter 10, verse 16 says, The one who hears you, hears Me. And the one who rejects you, rejects Me. And the one who rejects Me, rejects Him who sent Me. And so it's so important that it is Jesus that we're sharing about. Not our church and not all the things that we do in ministry and all this stuff. That it's Jesus. If people don't know Jesus, they are damned. Acts chapter 16, verse 31. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. But you can't say that with conviction if you don't believe that. If you believe that there are other ways to God, if you believe that there are other ways to, to, to experience some sort of higher thing, this is so important that you understand where you, you stand theologically to be able to share with conviction. That you know where you stand theologically. So that you'll be able to tell that person that, that tells you, oh, you know, I'm living a good life. I'm living a really good life. I, I haven't stolen anything. I haven't killed anybody. You know, I try to treat my, my kids well and my, my spouse well. So, you know, we're, we're, gonna, we're all going to the same place. Wrong. Theologically, wrong. Biblically, not right. Not true. That's not what the Bible says. And the, if, if, 
you go along saying like, oh yeah, that's true, whatever. You've totally negated what Jesus has said. What did he say? What did he do? Why did he come? How is he the only way? Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way. I am the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Can that be any more plain? There is no other way. I am the way. There is no other way. I am the truth. I am the way and the truth. He is the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one. Verse 23 and 24 of Luke 10. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desire to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Childlike faith, and you'll be able to see it and you'll be able to hear. You know, there were a lot of people who were waiting for a Messiah. There are many who would have loved to see what the disciples back at this time were seeing. And these guys were so blessed to see Jesus right in front of him, of them, to hear Jesus teach live right in front of them, to smell Jesus, which I don't think he smelled very good, but to smell Jesus right there and to touch him right there. So many generations weren't able to experience that. This group did. And so many died with this promise, but they didn't get to experience this firsthand. Peter wrote about this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10, and 12, 10 through 12. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. They were so blessed to see this fulfillment of Scripture. Now what about us? How about us? Because I think actually that we are blessed even greater. That we are blessed even more. And sure, we didn't get to see Jesus live and touch Jesus live and smell Jesus and hear Jesus live. But what we have is a complete revelation. A complete revelation of God that those guys didn't have. Right? That, that we get the privilege of knowing the atonement in its totality. Jesus dying on the cross. Jesus raising from the grave on the third day and now sitting on His throne and now we're waiting for His return. Not all of them got to see that. right? And it's totality. And the privilege we have to share about our Lord to a world that so desperately needs Him when we have that atonement picture in its totality to share. When we have been given power and authority to share the message on how to get people's names written in the book of life. That's a beautiful thing. 
That's an awesome charge for us. That's an awesome commission that Jesus has sent us out to do. And for those of you who are wondering, like, what am I going to say? Well, I, I haven't been trained properly, or I haven't been done this and that. You know, in the parable of the sower, people like to call it the parable of the sower, but I actually think it's the parable of the soils. But when you read that in that explanation, I think it's in Luke chapter 8. When you read that, there is no kind of description on the sower. It says the, the seed is the word of God. And then it talks about the soils, but it doesn't talk about the sower. Why? The sower is not the most important piece of that puzzle. Because the sower just simply sows. The sower just throws out seed. The important piece is that the seed is the word of God. That you throw out good seed. So that you know your word. You know the Bible. You don't start throwing other things out. Like these other counterfeit things. Right? Like... A lot of times the churches like to focus on things, and the, the biggest buzz now is social justice. And we like to go with the forefront of, yeah, social justice, and this is a great thing. It is. Or human trafficking. That's a big buzz thing now, too. That we want to go out and we, we're all about human trafficking, and we want to serve those things. It's a very important thing. But what distinguishes us between another organization out there that serves those things and aren't Christians, is that we have the Holy Spirit and we have Jesus who empowers us to do things that are beyond what we are able to do. And so these other organizations kind of have to deal with their own stuff. Oh, we, we're in the red. We've got to raise more funds or we've got to get this. We've got to recruit this help and this help and we've got to go about doing these things. The hub for us is the Word of God, the seed. All the other things can offshoot off of that. We cannot lead with something else. We cannot lead with a ministry. Those things are passing. Right? The 72 are saying like, hey, we, we, got to, we got to cast out demons in your name. We cannot lead with something that we are doing. Our names are written in the book of life. That's an everlasting thing. That's a foundational thing. May we stay true to the Bible and we serve out of that, out of that core. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for Your Word. I ask God that You, are, you would empower us through Your Holy Spirit to practice discernment discernment of when we've kind of fallen off the mark and we focused on other things that are outside of you, outside of everlasting, outside of your ministry that the Holy Spirit is ministering to our hearts. And Lord, forgive us for ever depending solely on ourselves. Help us to depend on you, to be guided by you. In Jesus' name, amen.